Hello, everyone. I'm John Pataki, and welcome to Best One Since the Next One, the podcast that scours the genre entertainment landscape, questing for fortune and glory. Today in the pod, we're cracking that whip and giving those pesky Nazis the slip as we talk Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the final entry in the Indiana Jones franchise. Later on the show, we'll be dialing back to revisit the storied career of Dr. Henry Walton Jones Jr. and choosing our top five indie moments. And here to do it all with me is Indiana Jones connoisseur and co-host of Blast Points, a Star Wars podcast. If podcasting has a name, it must be Jason Gibner. Welcome back to the show, actually. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. I'm so happy to be back. This is so much fun. It's your destiny to be here. So (laughs) uh, before we begin, I'd like to call attention to the fact that you were recently lucky enough to attend one of the biggest events of the year. Stars were in attendance. All the freaks and fans were out. That's right. I'm talking about the Taylor Swift Eras Tour. (laughs) I was there. I was there as well. Has your life been the same since? It has not. It has not. No, I... You know, people talk about like Eras Tour <laughs> amnesia. I didn't have that. I I remember it, but I afterwards I was more just like, what was that? What what did I even <laughs> what what even happened there? <laughs> You'd say you remember it all too well. I think um, it was uh, <laughs> it was uh, the amnesia thing. I also didn't experience that, but I I have been in the past couple of weeks like been like weirdly like jealous of myself for going my like my past <laughs> self for going and like. I wish I keep thinking like I wish I could be back at the Eras tour. <laughs> so it was unreal. I've never ever ever been to a concert like that. It was the craziest concert I have ever experienced in my life in every way, and dare I say, one of the best concerts I have ever been to in my entire life. It was absolutely incredible. I think I'm right there with you. I was slightly terrified uh, as like one of ten males in the building, and uh, but it was never easier to use the bathroom. So, <laughs> and I'm just so glad out of all the thousands and thousands of people there, we ran into each other. Yeah, totally. And and you were being such a good dad. You were looking for um, a sweatshirt for your daughter in a specific color and size, oh, which and, I got. Uh, which I got. You, I saw. I saw you going to find it and then coming back successful with it. And I was like, yes, yeah, magic's happening for everybody tonight. It's great. So, but. I'm sure that people didn't tune in to hear about Taylor Swift, but if you did, you're welcome. I just wanted to start off by asking, like, what does Harrison Ford mean to you as the host of a Star Wars podcast? Like, when you close your eyes, do you see Harrison Ford as Han Solo or as Indiana Jones first? You know, that's that's a really good question. And I see Indiana Jones. When I when I think of Harrison Ford, I think Indiana Jones. And I I think for me, that's I think that's probably because I've always been just more of a Luke person with Star sure. Wars, and you know I we'll we'll get into like my whole like indie story, but you know I'm old enough where I saw Raiders when it was when I was ridiculously young when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time, so. To me, just, you know, and I don't even know if I, I don't even know if I put it together that it was the same actor. I was so young, but the only thing I do remember is I had a 12 inch, like a Kenner 12 inch Indiana Jones and I had a Kenner 12 inch Han Solo and the heads were the same head. Like Kenner just used <laughs> the, the Han Solo head for Indiana Jones. Why and wouldn't I, you? Why wouldn't you? And I think for me, that was kind of like, oh, it's the same guy, but it's different parts. But I, it's, it's so weird because it's so just ingrained in my like psyche of the, these two characters, but 
yeah, Harrison Ford to me is Indiana Jones through and through. And it's almost like when he's in witness or presumed innocent or frantic or some other working girl, it's like, well, that's just Classic. Indiana Jones pretending to be someone else. Um, I got a lot of Mosquito Coast Harrison Ford in Dial of Destiny. <laughs> just yeah. If you haven't seen uh, Mosquito Coast, uh, make sure you do that because it's wild and it's very good. It is a very good movie. Very good movie. I did the same. I did this actual like as an exercise. Like I, I was like, I don't know the answer to this question for myself. And I, I, it's it's Indiana Jones for me as well. Like I always thought I was, I wanted to be a Han Solo person when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> and I think I've said this on the, on the pod before, but I was always like more of a C three PO kid. Like I this anxious weirdo, but like. Indiana Jones always comes up more to me in my memory because he's the nerd. He can take a punch and he can, he's kind of a badass at the same time. And I think that's just Harrison Ford throughout history. Like he means a ton to me. And my son's name is Harrison because of Harrison Ford. It's interesting that you say that about like, you didn't put it together that he was the same actor. Cause that's how I feel. He's the first actor that I realized that that's like what acting was as a seven or eight year old. Whenever I first saw him on my TV screen. I was like, this is, oh, this is what actors do. It was like a, a real aha moment. He was the first one I ever placed as a, an actor that played different characters. So I think that seems to be a pretty common through line with Harrison Ford fans in general. So Harrison Ford aside, what was your Indiana Jones entry point? But yeah. you, said Raider, you said Raiders, but what was the moment where it locked in? Oh gosh. Yeah. I was, re- you know, and it's, it's funny because Star Wars, my mom tells a story about how, you know, she took me and my sister to go see it and blah, blah, blah. And I don't remember because, again, I was so young, but I don't I think it was just like, hey, this is, you know, from the people, the the guy that made Star Wars and the guy that made Close Encounters. It was probably the I'd say most definitely the first Steven Spielberg movie I ever saw. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just kind of like this is some this is a big blockbuster. My family went to a lot of movies when I was a kid and you know this is the yeah, the guy that made Star Wars, let's take him. And there was a lot of stuff like there were action figures and there was like read along records and i was just i i was into it like i had found like indiana jones for me was like my next thing after star mm-hmm. wars like by the time raiders was out i was knee deep like we already had the empire strikes back and i was a 100% with star wars that was my thing when i was a kid but then you know nothing's really changed along came indiana jones And I, you know, like I had the read-along record. I had the action figures. And I was, I had the comic book. And I was just, I was, I was like, this is great. I was just immediately drawn to it. I just loved it. And I think, you know, you go back and you watch, like, at least I watch Raiders. And I, all the time I think about, God, this movie came out in what, 81, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like five years old. And I was like, God, I was five years old watching this movie. <laughs> like, you know, as as both of us, as parents of kids, like you think, like, would you show Raiders of the Lost Ark to your five-year-old? Like, I don't know. You I've know? been thinking about that. I've been thinking about that lately where I was like, is it too early? And then I watched it to like screen it first. I was like, oh, yeah, it's too early. <laughs> it's definitely too early. <laughs> but Within I was in the first 
10 minutes, like Alfred Molina gets speared through the face and body and there's like blood cascading down, but it was just a different time. So, yeah. And I remember being like, I remember that's the one thing I can clearly remember with Where's the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. I remember almost feeling my parents' anxiety of me watching it, like and watching <laughs> and seeing it many, many times in the theater and sure. then telling me over and over again, close your eyes, close your eyes. Like I, can clearly remember the end with the faces melting and them oh, yeah. just being terrified that that was going to like <laughs> mentally scar me for life where it did the opposite where like <laughs> I would peek through my fingers and I'd be like, this is so great. You know, melt those faces. One of my sons is this, he's like, we really want to watch Indiana Jones. You've been talking about it all the time. And they're like, we'll just, we'll just, we'll turn our heads and like look away whenever you want us to. And I was like, I don't remember where all the stuff is. So it was just like an, an anxious, <laughs> an anxious mess about it. And I was like, let's just wait a little while longer than we can watch it again. Like I, I saw I, the first one I saw was temple of doom. And like many of the movies from this era, they were all, my dad like taped them all off of TV. So I have like, that's how I saw star Wars for the first time. That's how I saw um, Indiana Jones for the first time was these, these VHS tapes from like local TV channels and that temple of doom is like, you know, rewatching it this, la- this past week, just to get hype for dial of destiny. I was like, where was the supervision? <laughs> like, why, why was, why was I allowed to watch this? This is like the darkest, most unsettling and unpleasant movie ever. It's, it's oh, like, yeah. uh, it's, it's up there. And, you know, seeing a guy's heart get torn out of his chest at like six or seven will change how your like DNA is made up, you know, it'll, it really rearranges your brain. So I can only imagine what melting faces did. So, yeah, well, and that's, that's the thing that's like, uh, Gabe and I say how all the time that we're, uh, return the Jedi people, but we came to the conclusion recently on blast points that we're also temple of doom people, totally. which, ex- which explains a lot because temple of doom was, yeah, the year after Raiders. And that was the thing it was like, we talk about how by the time return the Jedi came out, we were like, ready to go with return of the jedi but it, like i remember temple of doom coming out and me being just like ready and my mom got me a temple of doom t-shirt from jc Penney's that i insisted on wearing every day of the week and i didn't <laughs> want to take it off to be washed and yeah then last crusade comes out in 89 and i skipped school in junior high, I had a girl write a fake doctor's note so I could walk to the theater, walk to the Plaza 1 and 2 Theater in Muskegon, Michigan, to go see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I was terrified because I was like a 13-year-old <laughs> kid walking into the school with a backpack. And yeah, Indy is just, I've you know, I've always had a, like a fire lit for Indy. I've always just loved, loved, loved Indiana Jones. It's like, it's it's second to Star Wars for me. And it's just always just, and it, yeah, it's 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 a blood relative to star Wars. In my opinion, it's if you like one, you probably like the other. It's just always just been something that I love. And I, I think a lot of that, like we were saying comes from the character and the, the spirit of the movies. It's got the same kind of, this is goofy, but this is serious, but it's also really goofy as star Wars kind of flavor to it. That must be why I felt so at home listening to Blast Points initially. Return of the Jedi is my favorite and Temple of Doom is my favorite. So I was like, <laughs> I locked in. It's a certain type of person. Um, but yeah, it's definitely is like 1A and 1B for Star Wars and Indiana Jones. It's like they're both comprised of their complete homages to what came before them. They're both just completely blatantly steal from things in a loving way and to create their own adventures like was it secret of the incas so much taken from that 
like directly in this loving pastiche way. And it's like, you can't love one and not love the other. What do you think makes indie such an enduring hero? What, you know, in 2023, why is there an appetite for an 80 year old Indiana Jones on screen? Well, and again, I think a lot of it is what we were saying. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, well, I think a lot of it is Harrison Ford because you go back and you read the the early ideas that they had, like the the Philip Kaufman kind of era of the the screenplay and kind of what Kasdan was messing around very early with Raiders of the Lost Ark and how they were going to approach the character of Indiana Jones and how he was much more kind of James Bondish and more of a this kind of debonair ladies man kind of smooth and cool and he still is but i think part of the reason the character works and part of the reason why it's the whole thing that nobody ever wants to see another adult actor play indiana jones and not uh old man the deleted old man indie that no one can ever yeah. see again except for on youtube from young indie chronicles oh yeah with the eye patch yeah it's been been erased from history except on youtube is because what harrison ford added to it that he gave him this that kind of goofy in over his head but always you know the hat never comes off there's 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 an there's an attitude of ridiculousness to the character but also mm-hmm. this kind of subtle level level of humanity to him where he, he yeah like i said he's in he's always in over his head he's kind of he doesn't you know i'm making this up as i go it's mm-hmm. he's not a superhero he's he's a guy but that kind of makes him more of a great hero because we never really had like that kind of character before or really done really well since where in my opinion at least where it's this almost like cartoonish level of he's going to make it out okay he can get shot and keep going kind of thing right but also falls down and trips and you know steps in the wrong place and goofs up and stuff it's it's a very delicate line and i can't imagine any other person than harrison ford doing it and and also i think part of it is what the fact that steven spielberg is one of the greatest living filmmakers of all time and you just had some very very smart people getting those first three and four movies going especially the first three really kind of establishing what this character in this series is about you just had really really smart people between steven spielberg and george lucas and Mm -hmm. john williams and you know you had producers like frank marshall and kathleen kennedy and robert watts you know people that could just make the impossible possible and you know is it, you know you think of raiders of the lost ark as you know people always say it's a perfect movie and it and it is in many ways but that's not by accident it's because you've no. got people at the their creative heights it's the Beatles doing Sergeant Pepper or something or or revolver. It's like, that was the peak right there. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back and rewatching all of them. It's, it's just amazing how much that visual storytelling holds up and how much like temple of doom. I mean, I'll go back to it again and again, because it's the one I'm absolutely the most locked into and the most familiar with. It's like the mine car chase at the end of it is like still things don't look that good to this day. You know right. what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's really incredible. And in terms of the character itself, like there's an insecurity 
that Harrison Ford brings to it. He's he's not just a ladies' man because he's suave like James Bond. Like James Bond was like a ladies' man with no character development to it. He's just like smooth, smooth and sophisticated, and like can get any woman he wants. But Indiana Jones is clearly doing it out of like this insecurity that bubbles up, and you know we find out more about that through his father and like last the crusade and why that is that to me is always just been the selling point for the character. I remember always at the end of temple of doom when he's standing in the middle of the bridge and he's being approached from both sides and he just, he just goes to himself. He just goes, Oh shit. Like, I don't what, what am I even, what am I even supposed to do right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's always stuck with me because I'd never seen an action hero at that point. I'd literally never seen an action hero and he was the first one. So that's the template. And like, even to this day, when you make like, uh, I think probably the most recent example, like a guardians of the galaxy where you have the Chris Pratt character. That's like kind of insecure, but still gets the job done. It's like, that's, he's just doing Indiana Jones. Right. What do you think are the core elements that make up an indie movie? What what's like gotta be there? Weirdness, total weirdness. And I think that's maybe the most underrated thing. First and foremost, it's gotta be weird. It's something Gabe and I have talked about, especially with with this most recent uh, indie month that I don't want to say is finished because I think we're doing one more indie month episode. It's looking that way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's looking that way. Um, <laughs> the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know the big the big boulder, the big ball, and even the melting faces and the arc and everything, it's become just part of pop culture. It's become part sure. of like our the language of pop culture that people, oh, the, the ball chasing Indiana Jones. It's just kind of like people haven't even seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and they know that's indeed, that's Indiana Jones. The first time I saw that was uh, in the beginning of Muppet Babies. Right, so, exactly, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> But if you if you kind of step back and think about it, it's it's bizarre. It's just crazy. So what they mm-hmm. put this giant boulder up there, and what it's gonna like what trap him in, like he's in like a bottle. It's just nuts. And <laughs> you just think of the the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark with yeah, the Ark opens up and the power of God comes out and it melt and it just melts the Nazis' faces off. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, <laughs> but it's great. And you think of one hundred percent all of Temple of Doom. It's just bonkers. But again, these things have just become part of like our pop culture. And so that's one thing I was happy with Dial of Destiny, that it embraced kind of the wildness of it all. I think some that's taken some people by surprise. But uh, oh, what? OK, so besides the weirdness, uh, fun, that's a pretty obvious one. Indiana Jones movies have to be fun. They have to be fast paced and just a sense of fun to them of you know the kind of the old like the the you know we talk about all the time the serials and the kind of adventure kind of how is he going to get out of this one kind of thing intelligent all Ian and jones movies have this weird working brain behind them of either historical stretched fact or some basis in something real like an Indiana Jones movie can't be kind of dumb. Like you can't just kind of make something up. I've always loved that the arc was this all powerful weapon humming in the box. Well, I guess the, the closed caption says warbling, which I love that as a descriptor <laughs> for the sound it makes. I've always been obsessed with the fact that they've taken things you can go and read in an encyclopedia. Uh, even with, you know, the, the Antikythera in Dial of Destiny, where it's like, this is a real thing that exists. And, we're just making 
the impossible possible with it. So, and it's like what George Lucas just went crazy with, with, uh, in young Indiana Jones, where he was just like, okay, well, we're not going to have too much artifacts, but we're going to go nuts with the history side of things. And the, the, the real the Guevara, the Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. The, the real, you know, Indiana Jones is going to meet Ernest Hemingway and that's the or Picasso <laughs> and that's the whole episode. And this episode's about art kids pay attention. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> And I love that about Indiana Jones. I love that, yeah, that the Dial of Destiny, the Antikythera is real. And then it's like, wait, what? And then reading about it and you're like, what? You know, I think that's really fun. And Antikythera is just really fun to say. It is. I probably said it wrong because. <laughs> no, no, I think I think you're right because I was paying attention to it. I just got back from the, my second showing of it like two hours ago. And I was like, got to remember how to say it. Got to remember how to say it. So I think. I think you nailed it. You can't just call it Archimedes Dial. That's boring. Yeah, right. Beginner stuff. I mean, there's ro- romance in an mm-hmm. Indiana Jones movie, uh-huh. but kind of an kind of an anti-romance. The Willie Scott character is like, it's a romance, but it's like there, then it's not. It's on again, off again throughout the course of the movie. There's that old school adventurer romance to it. I think you hit the ones that were on my list too, especially starting with being weird, which is always, why I never really understood why people had an issue with Fridgegate 2008, but that's all right. Without further ado, let's put on our fedoras, hop into Tuk Tuk, and careen down a giant staircase straight into the heart of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. What happened to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, you may ask. We have you covered. Indiana Jones races against time to retrieve the Antikythera, also known as Archimedes Dial, a device that was the obsession of his former colleague, Basil Shaw, that can predict the location of fissures in time. Accompanied by Basil's daughter and his own goddaughter, Helena Shaw, and her sidekick, Teddy, he quickly finds himself pursued by Jürgen Voller, a Nazi scientist hired by the United States to land a man on the moon as part of Operation Paperclip. Voller is seeking the device to return to 1939 and kill Hitler, so that he may take his place as Fuhrer and change the destiny of the Nazis. Fucking awesome plot. (laughs) Does Indy succeed in stopping him? Of course he does. Is that the point of the movie? Not at all. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, But the movie uh, was released this past weekend, June 30th, technically 2023, directed by the man himself, James Mangold, the man of gold. Lots of uh, reviews touched on this. I really loved his direction of it. And I really think he had a lot like impossible shoes to fill. I'm wondering how you felt with this. Like some of that Spielberg flair was missed. A lot of reviews I read touched on this, that like Spielberg's very playful with the camera. I think specifically of like Last Crusade when Indy's face gets smushed up against the periscope on the tank some of that was missing here and it was kind of just like movie movie it looked great and like i said i don't envy anybody that has to step in for spielberg what did you think of his his direction well i, th- I think a lot of a lot of what surprised me with dial destiny is that it is it's bold in some of the choices it, in the choices that it makes and bless it for doing that i think it's a movie that could divide audience where someone could say oh it played it too safe and then someone could be like oh is it, it was too bold or something but you know my first thought and i still kind of think of this way is i it makes me think of uh steven's what steven spielberg did with ai where he was very much honoring Kubrick, who was originally starting that movie and kind of handed it to Spielberg, said, "You're you, actually, you should make this movie. And at times, Spielberg in, in AI did Kubrick-esque shots. Some flourishes. Some flourishes, but also kind of made it his own, which also was bold of 
Spielberg to do that with Kubrick's original material. And I thought of that same thing with Mangold, where, yeah, there are times, especially in the 1944 opening, where he really kind of channels shots of Spielberg. And it's kind of like, oh, that's a Spielberg shot. I think of Basil running through the woods and the the woods look just like E.T. and the shots of the, oh, yeah. dog, the dogs chasing Basil through the woods. Sure. Some of the shots of the train are very, very, very Spielberg. Even that uh, first shot of the movie where they, they blast the door open and in comes Indy with a bag over his head. Right. That like panning and crossed the artifacts with oh. Indy walking behind them and being pulled is very, very Spielberg. Very Spielberg. But then also bold mangled to also say, well, okay, I, I know who made these movies before me, but also my, my you know, in the end, it's going to say directed by James Mangold, and I have to make my own movie, mm-hmm. which he very sure. much did. It it feels more like a movie by the guy that made Ford versus Ferrari and Logan and Walk the Line. But also, it, 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 it at least for me, it never was like it never felt like he was trying to show off or he was trying to outdo anything. It felt like he was just he knew the rules, he knew the box he was in with making an Indiana Jones movie, and he made that box beautiful. I'm going to take a little longer to get there. I didn't think he did a bad job by any means. I just think sometimes it got some of the action got a little lost in the sauce. And like Spielberg is the absolute hands down master of like legible action scenes. Like there's nobody that even comes close to him. I, I would I would say James Cameron is probably the the second. They're probably tied. Chad Stahelski from the John Wick series, series is creeping up the ladder very quickly. But but Spielberg just has the, this panache that Cameron doesn't have like Spielberg Spielberg really goes for it like not that not that Cameron doesn't because James Cameron absolutely really goes for it but uh, Spielberg like has a lot more fun with it than Cameron does so I'm just saying in general I think that James Mangold did an exceptional job given the the history and the the pedigree of the series so I it's one of those things I'll just have to get used to it I think you know you guys say this on blast points a lot like it's a new member of the family right and I just have to get used to that visual style and uh there's nothing wrong with that. So yeah, written by Jez Butterworth, John Henry Butterworth, David Coop, and then James Mangold himself. Music by who else? John Williams. Ever heard of him? Um, th- this kind of goes without saying, but like I love that John Williams just will step up and just conduct the shit out of anything, no matter what nonsense is on like the screen behind him. <laughs> like there's the most insane thing in the world happening, and he's just like, oh, here's uh here's an appropriate like mandolin from the era. Uh, there's nothing to say about John Williams that hasn't been said a million times already, but a genius and glad to have the score from him budget of 300 million dollars a box office take so far of 152 million internationally as of this record i'm sure it'll make more with the holiday weekend pretty darn good for not having a movie since 2008 that was pretty much hated across the board so i know you're a big crystal skull i'm a crystal skull i would say apologist not fan i really enjoy it i know that you you and gabe are like huge huge fans and i love your episode that you did with brandon way nerdy from talking bay 94 about it it's just interesting to me that the drive is still there after everyone was like, man, fuck that movie. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. And, and and I and I feel like, and this is something we talked about in that episode with Brandon, is that Dial of Destiny is the best thing that could happen for King of the Crystal Skull. And I get it. Oh, I, sure. I get it with King of the Crystal Skull. It's goofy. Like, if you go, you know, straight from The Last Crusade to King of the Crystal Skull, you know, I don't want to make anybody mad, but it's like going from The Last Jedi to The Rise of Skywalker. It's, you know, you can see that they're, they're, something's, something's not the same here. Yeah, what happened? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, at least with Kim and Crystal Skull to Last Crusade was a long time. But anyway, anyways, but I am happy that since 
kind of a lot of since Dial of Destiny and getting ready for Dial of Destiny, more and more people have gone back to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Mm-hmm. And more and more people have been kind of like, hey, this this movie's kind of fun. And the, some of yeah. the the heavy weight of expectation has kind of gone from that movie. And and also the 4K that's out on Disney Plus just looks gorgeous. So when I say apologist, I think that's selling it too short. I say the original three are perfect, amazing, fantastic. Crystal Skull is really good. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'll pop it on. It's a great like bedtime movie for me, but it's just not it doesn't get to those heights of uh of the first three for me, but I know that there's a big group of defenders out there and I appreciate that. So <laughs> the cast, obviously, again, Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones. That's why you listen to this podcast is for hard hitting fact finding like that. Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Helena Shaw, who I thought was absolutely electric in this movie. She mm-hmm. was so fantastic. I felt kind of bad on when I saw it Thursday night, opening night. I could feel like the holding of breath when she talked. I, there were some bad vibes towards her in the in the audience. I think people were nervous about the mantle being passed on. I think people were nervous that they were like, quote unquote, lying about that or something like that. There was just some energy that was off in the theater. Whenever she spoke, it felt like the room kind of sucked into itself, whereas mm-hmm. I was eating it up. I loved her. I thought she was great. And she's able to do her own thing and like be on her own without that expectation of putting on the fedora. In fact, like at the very end of the movie, like she puts on her own hat as kind of like, a, I don't need that fedora. That's not even in my thought process. So how did you feel about Helena Shaw? I loved her. I mean, I, yeah, I, you could see it coming with a certain audience and their yeah. attitude toward her, but I was just like, whatever. I thought she was, a, a, you know, a neat sidekick for Indiana Jones and in, in like a way we've never seen before. I mean, she's almost kind of like every Indiana Jones uh, sidekick, like, or female lead in the movies all kind of wrapped into one where she's switching sides, like Elsa Schneider. Like, you don't know, like, whoa, is she this? No, wait, she's that. She's not really into the adventures, like Willie Scott. And also she's tough and rolling with Indian everywhere he goes, kind of like with Marion. But then I liked that also she was all those things, but she was something different too. And she was an archaeologist. She That's what she went to school for. But she was almost kind of like a belloc kind of too, where she was more about just making that cash versus it belongs in a museum. I thought she was neat. I liked her. I, I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is great. I mean, I loved her as L337. I like her in Fleabag. And when I heard she was going to be in this movie, I was like, that makes total sense to me. Yeah, it fits right in. I don't have a problem with her at all. And no. I don't know. I think some people are bringing personal baggage into with their judgment of her and stuff and whatever. Go outside, touch grass, get yeah. off the internet, basically. Yeah. And I, I love that she had like she had her own like short round, pretty much. I love that like you know it wasn't Indy that had the sidekick, really. It was her that had the sidekick. There's one point where Teddy's like, "You're still in charge, right?" She's like, "Yeah, I'm still in charge." Yeah, I thought Teddy was great too because Teddy very much acts as the audience through the whole thing where Teddy's the one asking like, so where are we going? So what's going on? You know, like it's a kind of a genius tool to explain to Teddy like, well, this, you know, to kind of tell the audience, well, now we're doing this, you know, and treat us like we're children too, please. Yeah. <laughs> Mads Mikkelsen right at home as Jürgen Voller. Does anyone do a Nazi like Mads Mikkelsen? Not a compliment, maybe a compliment. I don't know. Where does uh Voller sit to you in the pantheon of indie villains? Is it too early to tell? It's yeah, it's, it's still too early to tell but i my favorite voler moment and it's very subtle but it's our our first kind of introduction to him in the, in 1969 
when the when the hotel guy comes in yes. with the room service and the disgust that Voler has for him. And when he says that line, like, where are you from? And the guy's like, I'm from the Bronx, sir. And he's like, no, you're people. Where are you from originally? Yeah, yeah. you're people. And I was like, oh, God. Like Sinister. Sinister. Just just the, the sleaze and the just like, oh, yeah, this guy's a Nazi. I just like how horrible Nazi he is. And like Gabe said, like, like he's, he, Gabe said in our episode, he's he's like he's he's so nazi that he doesn't think hitler was nazi enough <laughs> yeah. Ian even says that he's like what kind of nazi wants to kill the fuhrer and he's like me this yeah. guy super nazi i think it's also too early to tell but like i do think he fits comfortably on the shelf with donovan and mola ram and Belloc as i don't think he's necessarily as iconic as those again who knows at this point the movie came out three days ago it's a wonderful performance very understated He's yeah. not like barking through a megaphone in German. He's just very calm and sophisticated. And, you know, that mirror of Indy where they're both relics of the past. They're both, they used Bowler for the moon mission and now they're done with him. And, you know, Indy's on his way out as well. So great foils for each other. Um, I mean, that's a constant um, through line for indie movies too is like, I'm just like you, you know. Antonio Banderas as Ronaldo felt he was a little bit underused, but at first but then on the second viewing i was like oh i think that was purposeful to show like how quickly things can change in life and how mortality catches up to you it struck me both times that on the boat as they're escaping that scene helena's making a joke and Indy's like i just my friend just died like i just lost my friend and that stuck out to me as very purposeful that he was just like this is collateral damage and i'm losing more people than i'm gaining in my life at this point so then we got my man boyd holbrook is clobber you can never have enough Boyd Holbrook. John Reese davies back again as Sala. Toby Jones, magnificent as Basil Shaw. Ethan Isidore, really great as Teddy. Really glad he wasn't just doing a short round impression. He was really doing his own thing, but was still so likable and uh, a really great addition to the cast. And then, of course, the incomparable Karen Allen coming in at the end. Spoiler alert, as Marianne Ravenwood. Who else? We'll talk about that ending in a moment, but I think I'm still crying from it. So <laughs> got me both times. First things first, what did you think? Oh, I love it. The long and short of it. You love it. I love it. I love, I, yeah, I love the Dial of Destiny. I really do. Um, and I, I, I wondered when I first saw it, it, which we'll get into later, if that was the atmosphere at which I, I viewed it the first time in, how much of that was informing my opinion. And that was, it was a nice thing seeing it again um, a couple times on Friday and just seeing a much calmer atmosphere, which we'll talk about a little bit more, but uh <laughs> And just kind of being like, yeah, I, I do. I really love this movie. I I I, I love that. Yeah, I love what it is. I love that it's it, it is. It's more, and that's the thing that you kind of had Raiders, which was like this perfect little adventure movie, like no one's ever done before in 1981. And then you kind of had another kind of Indiana Jones standalone movie. George Lucas is getting divorced and is having a really hard time and put it all right there on the screen. Thanks to real bummer town. Yeah. He was going through some stuff and (laughs) you couldn't tell you can tell. And with the help of his buddy, Steven Spielberg kind of worked through his feelings and temple of doom. And they're both kind of standalone adventures. And then you have Steven Spielberg, who in between Temple of Doom and Last Crusade really started becoming the filmmaker he is still today. He was starting to move away from the summer popcorn movies and start to make more personal films for him. He hadn't quite hit the heights of Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan yet, but 
but you get that in Last Crusade that he it's a much you know the the emotional story for Indiana sure. Jones began mm-hmm. and that yeah. kept going in King of the Crystal Skull and it that is one thing I think that Mangold inherited you know he inherited a little bit of the visual language of Indiana Jones just a little bit but he really inherited the emotional story that began in Last Crusade. And that was my whole thing going into Dial of Destiny when it was like announced, like, well, we're making an Indiana Jones 5. And I was kind of like, great, but why? Because right. in my opinion, King of the Crystal Skull was a suitable ending. And I was like, what else can you do with the character? I mean, he got married to Marion. What is, and he's 80 years old. Why is there an excuse to get him doing this again and that was the big thing i never really knew why and seeing the movie and seeing the story they told with indiana jones i was surprised you know i i was worried about how they were going to handle mutt because we all knew they were saying very early on that shia would not be in the film no surprise Mm -hmm. but i was like well what how are they going to do that how do you just how do you say that your main character has a son and that's the whole point of the fourth movie and then in the fifth one, he's just not around. And I was worried if he was dead, what that would mean. Because something, again, Gabe and I talked about, you, you remember like the lead into the, the Force Awakens and like, you know, people involved in the production of the movie making snide little comments that, oh, they find Jar Jar's bones in the desert and stuff. And mm. it's like, oh, yeah, I don't geez. love it. You know, it's like, oh, geez, you know, like there's not a lot of respect for what came before. That's very much changed now. But I was worried we were going to, you know, with a new director, like, well, you know, and the, the public opinion on King of the Crystal Skull, like, if we're going to take this story seriously, even though it's ridiculous, what is that going to mean for Mutt? And I thought the movie did it beautifully. I thought it did it the best way it possibly could. I love that Mutt's death is the emotional center of the entire movie, that all the Indiana Jones dressing is put on top of that emotion, that very, very, very tender emotional core of losing mm-hmm. a son. And uh, yeah, again, I thought it was bold and I thought it was just wonderful. I thought it was like, okay, that's the reason for making this movie where it's something Gabe said that Indiana Jones has like found treasure and punch Nazis and fought the impossible and now, in a way, this movie is about Indiana Jones kind of fighting himself and fighting depression and coming out of it with a reason to still exist, which is really kind of what happens. Like, it's the question yeah. going into Indiana Jones 5 is like, why? Why make it? Why have this character in this? And the movie kind of embracing that. And folding that into the story of like what gets not only Harrison Ford back into an Indiana Jones movie, but what gets Indiana Jones back out in the field what forces him to get out there and do that and he's it's the flip of the indiana jones that we see in last crusade where he's chasing after his father's approval in that movie and now he's the father who's who's searching for something to replace the losses he's felt but he's like completely given up you know when we first are introduced to him he's laying with, with just boxers on in his chair watching uh hr puff and stuff and like just grumpy old man alone by himself defeated in chicago you first saw the movie i was like don't tell me anything but like tell me something yeah. <laughs> and you were like there's two scenes where harrison ford acts his ass off the scene where Helena asks him if he would go back and see Cleopatra, if he could go back in time. And he says, I know I would tell my son not to enlist. It just took my breath away. Like it was, you've never seen Indiana Jones cry before 
or wrestle with his mortality or any of these things. And in this moment, you're seeing all of that unravel. I was really struck by the fact that like, again, going back to Temple of Doom, I was watching that and you know, he's like shredded for that movie. Harrison Ford's like never looked better in his life than he did in Temple of Doom. Maybe Witness, I don't know. Just that contrast of Indy in Temple of Doom versus him like walking to go yell at the party going on in his apartment complex. He's still looking good, but like his body's completely like withered and aged was really striking and really made me think about my own mortality that I've watched not only Indiana Jones, but Harrison Ford grow up on screen. And this movie really handled it in such a deft way. I don't know. I'm glad I saw the movie twice it would have been a slightly not completely different but like a slightly different conversation because I spent my first viewing of the movie like really anxious about the time travel angle and what they would do especially since I just saw the flash which was like the death knell of society I could not handle that movie I was like this is just like anti-culture I don't know what we're doing here I was like if I see a resurrected Sean Connery on screen at any point I'm gonna walk out the way that they handled the time travel is not what I expected. I'll say that. But the fact that it's not even really a time travel movie, it's a movie about you need to end up where you are at, no matter what path you're on, you're where you're supposed to be. And there's no amount of going back to the past and changing. Even with a mystical artifact, even with mathematics, even with magic, even with anything, you can't go back and you have to accept where you are and who you are in the world as your one life. And that was really moving to me. Like I said, the, the Archimedes stuff on the first viewing, I was like, no, I don't know if that worked for me at all. But on the second viewing, it really it really smoothed it out. To be fair, I, like, I missed completely somehow in the first time I saw it that the Dial of Destiny was created by Archimedes to call for help. Hmm. I didn't hear that aspect of it. So I was like, this feels like you're like fourth grade teacher dressing up like Archimedes and coming to talk to Indiana Jones. But the second time, now that I expected it, it really worked quite well for me. It was just that initial shock of this is what we're doing. And the second time I saw it, I just let it wash over me. And I thought it was a really emotional culmination of the story. So the response coming out of Cannes, and you and I talked about this, was like, is that the place to debut Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is to like a bunch of like pretentious critics and things like that. And you know, critics have their role and critics are there to interpret film history in a way that they see fit. Art is a subjective genre. I don't think can is the place to debut this movie. I was like, I can't really trust that response. And then you had the honor of going to the premiere of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And I was like, I don't really know if I can trust these guys either because it was like such, such a emotional moment for all of you as huge Indiana Jones fans. Turns out you guys were correct. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I, it's like it's a movie for fans, but not one that leans into nostalgia. It's actually like kind of anti-nostalgia in that way that we were talking about, where it's about not dwelling in the past as much as there's a de-aged Indiana Jones in the movie. And I was really impressed by that. How it feels like a collage of old indie elements, but it never lead, leans too hard into any one of them. And I was honestly really impressed by the restraint in terms of the lack of references to previous movies. They're there, but as part of Indy's world and his emotional history as a character, not as just like a wink, wink. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? Remember this? Remember this? That was not a shot at Crystal Skull. That's just the first thing that came to my mind. Well, and, um, and Last Crusade when they're going through the cave and they're like, what's this? The Ark of the Covenant, you know? it's. But yeah, I just felt that that was really impressive that they were just like able to make an emotionally impactful Indiana Jones story without being like, remember Raiders? There is remember Raiders to it, but- because Indy's remembering Raiders. It's his nostalgia. It's not our nostalgia. You saw the movie at the premiere. Did you want to go into a little bit of what it was like seeing it there 
versus seeing it like with us common folk at, the, <laughs> at your local theater? Like, what was the shift in tone? Like, how did it hold up? Yeah, I, I was really, yeah, like I said, I was really curious how that, w- what that was like. And because, you know, first of all, we were so freaked out and beyond grateful to have been invited to attend the the premiere in LA. You know, even just saying that, it just sounds insane. And I look at pictures and I'm like, God, it really happened. It's just bonkers. But we are, you know, it was just, just a truly bizarre and wonderful and, you know, incredible day. And again, we are just so grateful to, to have been invited. But, you know, but there was the they showed the movie and it was like at the Dolby Theater where the Oscars are. And mm-hmm. on a giant, giant Dolby Atmos Vision screen, and Michael Giacchino is sitting two rows in front of us. And before the movie starts, there's Steven Spielberg and George Lucas on stage introducing John Williams, and John Williams plays like a mini concert before the movie starts. And you're just like, <laughs> "What the heck is happening?" But Gabe, you know, after the movie ended, Gabe and I were talking, and I was like. If the movie didn't click with me, I think I would know. There would still be red flags in my head while I was watching it. But, you know, and really after it ended, I was, if if it was kind of a nice thing where I had two weeks though, where I just had to just sit with the movie literally alone. Could not see it. No way to see it. Couldn't see it. Could only talk to a handful of people about it who also saw it, who were there. But we all were kind of like, we liked it, right? Yeah, we all yeah, we all really liked it. It wasn't just yeah. it wasn't just that, you know, the magic of that night, which was magical, but it was like we were all it was like, no, that was good. I liked that. And I and I liked it, I think, for the same reasons I was talking about earlier, because I picked up on that stuff right away. It was that stuff that surprised me. But it was nice watching it just on Friday afternoon in a theater with a handful of people and just having a real kind of chill viewing experience. And so much of it I had forgotten. Like we talked about concert amnesia with Taylor Swift. I kind of had dial of destiny amnesia where there was like, Oh yeah, this part, this part, (laughs) you know, and like, Oh yeah, this was so good. And it was just kind of nice. Yeah. Especially the second and third times on Friday, just kind of like settling back into it. And, you know, like you said, like Gabe and I say all the time, like uh, bringing a new baby home, like a new member of the family of kind of being like, yeah, you're you're a member of the family now. I I I know I've got your bedroom ready for you here. You're right. Let's get to know you. Let's get to know you. Welcome to the family. Because, yeah, it yeah, I and I was really curious on if I could judge the movie uh, fairly with that kind of super magical introduction. But there were people at that premiere in Los Angeles that who walked out being just like, eh, no matter how much the, the hype of that day led up to it for some people, it wasn't, it wasn't working for them. But I, for me, I was like, yeah, I know I like this. I there's, there's qualities in this that, yeah, no matter how much they, they buttered us up before it started. There there was, (laughs) there was stuff in there. I really, really liked that picture of uh, the two of you like flanking Spielberg yeah, in the background. I was the like, hell? that's, I can't, I can't believe that's real. It's like a mid journey AI composition. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying that to be rude. I was just like, no, yeah. These people were all hopped up on Indiana Jones juice. <laughs> we, and, were. Uh, we were. We were like, it just looked like everyone was just running around. We were. Um, <laughs> we were. 
no offense to anybody there, but I was like, I don't know if they're reliable narrators at this point. But like I said, you guys were absolutely reliable, at least those of you that I know. Like you said, those qualities, when, when I got out of it, I was like, there's definitely things about it I didn't love, but I definitely liked the movie. I definitely came out and was like, that was good. I enjoyed that. I can't wait to watch it again. Even with some of the big swings that I didn't really like glom onto instantly, I was like, they brought it back home at the end and we're good. How did you feel about the opening sequence? Did the de-aging of Harrison Ford, was that distracting to you? Did you like it? I thought it was pretty darn good. Yeah. I I mean, I think it's, I think it's probably the best we've seen in a movie Mm -hmm. before. Um, It's something that when I, when that is one thing, when I first watched it, uh, I felt like I was watching it with a critical eye, very much of, I want to, I know, I know this is a trick. So, you know, it's like watching a magician. I'm going to look for how they're doing this trick because I know this isn't, you know, you know, this, I know this person isn't being sawed in half. So how am I being tricked here? And you know, you're looking for the flaws and I, you know, I caught myself doing that. And at a certain point I was like, just stop it, stop it, stop, stop looking for the flaws. And I, you know, and I think the second and third time I watched it, I've been in a much calmer headspace where I can just kind mm-hmm. of enjoy and be like, just, you know, this is neat. Like, how in the world did they even do this? You know, right. it, it, it's I I, I want to watch it with like a little kid who doesn't even know the difference. You know, I, I use this example all the time. But when I went to go see Rogue One with my daughter, who was mm-hmm. much younger yeah. when Rogue One came out. She had watched uh, A New Hope just a couple days before, and she had no idea that the Tarkin in Rogue One was not the same, was not Peter Cushing. And <laughs> they just got Peter Cushing back for Rogue One. She, <laughs> he's back. Yeah, and I, I was talking to her about it, and she's like, oh, that's not the same actor. And I was like, no, he's been he's been dead for a long time. <laughs> you know, and I still think that is neat because like as adults, we, we know... But for kids, I mean, I wonder with kids watching the Book of Boba Fett and Luke Skywalker showing up, would they care? You know, be like, whatever, that's Luke. It's a tricky thing with de-aging because, yeah, we you're, you watch it looking, you look for the cracks. You look for like... I don't think your brain is capable of not looking for that unless you concentrate on turning that part off. When it first came on, I was like, that looks really good. Oh, that looks really bad. That looks really good. Like it was a push-pull. I found it hard to get emotionally invested in what was happening in the action scene, even though it was visually exciting. because. I was like, this is all happening to Indiana Jones, but that's not Harrison Ford. So who am I rooting for here if it's not Harrison Ford? And this and this and this, but it technically is Harrison Ford. What's even going on right now? Right. The second time today when I watched it, I was like, this is just a really awesome 20-minute opening to a movie. Exactly. So, and I think that's the way, yeah, to go into it. You just have to go in and just and just understand it because, like I said, there were some pretty ghoulish things that happened in the Flash movie. So I'm just really touchy about de-aging right now. And I think I figured out my rule of thumb is it's a, if it's like a digital resurrection I'm not into it at all. If you're bringing someone back from the dead with CGI, it really feels gross to me. But if it's someone that's still alive and in the movie and can give that consent, even if it's not their estate, I really enjoy it. It just seems like a really fine line. They did some things in The Flash that I thought were just completely unforgivable. And this was not that. I thought it was actually quite well done. Um, there were some moments where I was like, "He's that's him.
it's an indie movie, so it's nine times out of ten going to be about beating up Nazis or finding artifacts. But let's talk about the larger theme of the movie, the time and destiny and where do you belong in history and the story of history. To me, like, you know, the It Belongs in a Museum, So Do You exchange from Last Crusade is like the framework for this whole movie. Where do you belong when society is moved on and looking towards the future? I think a lot about Marshall College bustling. You know, everyone's like super horned up for Indy in all of his classes, like giving him apples. You know, everyone can't wait to go to Indiana Jones's class, but he's here in Chicago and his lecture is not well attended at all quiet, non-responsive. Everyone's distracted by the parade going on outside because it's moon landing day or it's moon day in 1969 and the past is dead and the future is what's in. I just thought that was a really genius framework for the movie and it just told you everything you needed to know off the bat that Indy is now a relic and where does he fit now that he's not the focus. What did you think of that as a, as a framing device? I, you know, I, I, I loved it and it, it just made me think about how in every Indiana Jones movie, every one of them, it's it's not the object, it's not the the idol or the the ark or the the stones or the grail or the skull. It's it's what those things represent in each movie, and that's usually what the, each one is actually about. It's what you know, Indy think every movie Indy thinks he's looking for one thing, and in the end. He finds something else, you know, it wasn't about the, the grail is about illumination or it was, and it was about him repairing the relationship with his father or reconnecting. Yeah. Yeah. Or the Sankara stones in the beginning in Temple of Doom, he thinks he's looking for fortune and glory. He's more like Helena. And in, by the end, he, you know, it's like, don't you want to take him to a museum? Oh no, look at what it does to these, you know, the families. It's a dusty old rock. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Raiders, you know, people always make the thing, oh, Indiana Jones isn't even there, you know, the whatever, oh, whatever. the Big Bang Theory Ugh. crap, whatever, you know, but, in, that, <laughs> but in, a, in a way that's true. But in, in a way, if you think that, if you think that's a negative, you're missing the whole point because totally, it's not about Indy chasing the Ark. It's about Indy and Marion and, and him kind of repairing this thing from his past. And in the end, when he goes down the steps of Marion arm in arm, you know, a drink, and in King with a Crystal Skull, you know, Akator, the lost city of gold, gold's translation is knowledge. And kind of Indy in the end gets the knowledge that he's, his life is more than he thinks it is. He also wants to know. Yeah, he wants to know, but not in the way Spalco does. But, you know, Indy wants to know kind of what his purpose is. And his purpose is with Marion and being a father now. And it's great. And that's the thing that there's this dial that isn't even like the. I love that the Nazis think it's a time travel machine. That this is going right, to make right, us right. go back in time, and we're going to do World War II the right way. But it's not a time travel machine. It's it's like basically a one way ticket. It's like a Terminator thing where it's a time loop. It's like a it's a mm-hmm. circle. Because, you know, Archimedes saw Indy come and he knows that it's like this is this is a one way street with this thing. You can't just pick and choose where you're going to go with with the Antikythera. You're just you're going to go here and then you're going to go back to there. It's wonderful, too, because like we were saying, it's the whole thing that Indy very much like you said, like, what would you do if you had access to time travel like Cleopatra? And he's like, I would go back and stop my son. Well, you can't go back. You can't go back to the pet. Like 
you can't correct the wrongs of your past, but you do have to be there in the present. And that absolutely when the movie starts, Indy is not in the present. I mean, he is a teacher of history. And I love that like the whole thing that the class isn't paying attention because wonderful here you have 1969 and people are landing on the moon and it's the future. It's what's next. And Indy is talking about things that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And nobody cares about what happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Right. Guess I'll to spoon feed it to you. (laughs) I love that. Right. It's kind of a meta thing where it's like, well, Indiana Jones even in the old films, is a character from the past. And even for people like us, he's a character from our past. Indiana Jones Mm -hmm. is the past. And that's the whole thing. It's like, why do you need to make another Indiana Jones movie today? But it's the whole thing of the Dial of Destiny. It's about living for now. It's about living for the moment. It's about being present in the, the people that need you right now versus worrying about what you did years ago and i again i thought as a theme for the movie as that being the the beating heart of an indiana jones movie it's the biggest beating heart that an indiana jones movie's ever had in my opinion and i was like what a what a great message and yeah that's where i walked away just being like I, you know i don't know what the, i don't know what those critics in france were thinking what going into it but i was like that resonated with me and therefore I dig it. Yeah. And, you know, they keep harping on the fact that, like, you know, Voller keeps saying, like, history is defined by losses. And, like, right. you didn't win the war. Hitler lost the war. Right. And to him, the loss is World War II and Nazi control. But Indy lost his son and his marriage. And his life and his history are defined by those losses. And he can't accept that either. And that's why he's venturing back out one more time because he's like, this is all I know how to do is adventure. All I know how to do is get myself in these scraps and get myself out of them. And I go home to nothing. Well, and even that is stepping into the past for him. Yeah. Yep. 100%. And when he said that, where I was like, what would I even go home to is probably one of the most, if not the most heartbreaking Indiana Jones moments. I think another really heartbreaking aspect of the movie is Sala's story. It's not as overtly heartbreaking, but when he drives him to the airport and he's a cab driver, you know, and he's he's happy in New York. He's like, here's this wonderful man that brought us to America. It's in the trailer, but it just hits so much harder in the, in the film when he's like, I miss the desert. I miss the sea. I miss waking up to what wonderful adventure we'll have. That's all these guys know how to do. It's like Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, working in retail after they retire from playing music. All they've ever done their whole lives is play rock and roll music. They can't do anything else. I get that with Sala, but also I love... When we see Sala at the end, and yeah. he's just with his grandchildren getting ice cream, and he's literally totally. dancing down the street. It's heartbreaking. Here you go, from a certain point of view. And then you realize that Sala has accepted his happy life with his grandchildren. It, you see him like, yeah, just let's go. Never a bad time for ice cream and singing that one song that he knows yeah. going down the hallway. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking at first, and then it, it really nails that theme home at the end.
<laughs> this concept was kind of developed before I realized that the dial was not a time travel device. It was more more a framing device. So that's open but, to interpretation. That's where I'm standing now. I'm saying more that like this dialing back to our top five indie moments. I was like, the segment's kind of defunct now because it's not about traveling through time to these moments, but we're also on a podcast and it's all made up. So it's fine. <laughs> we're going to basically go through our top five indie moments, not like the most iconic, but just the parts that really make us love indie movies the most. Um, what's your number five? My Number five is The Jungle Chase from Kingman the Crystal Skull. Oh, yeah. Maybe an unpopular one, but I love that cartoony, ridiculous jungle chase. I love Spauko and <laughs> Mutt sword fighting on top of the two little cars. I love Mutt swing, swing with the monkeys. I love everyone pointing and the skull flying from car to car. I love uh, Oxley with his Henry Jones Jr. line. Just all of it. It's ridiculous. It's insane. Um, but I I love it. I think I love it for that fact. Absolutely. And there's also the great line where she's like, there's only one problem. It wasn't you, honey. Oh, yeah. Which is the story behind that line. I, I think it's in Rinzer's book, maybe, or was, maybe it was an old interview with David Coop, where he didn't have no line for that scene. He didn't know something where Indy could say. And he reached out to Larry Lawrence Caston. And he's like, what? I, I'm stuck here. Like, what's something to say? And Kazan gave him that line. Just off the top of his head? Yeah, and he was like, oh my God, that's why Larry Kasdan is Larry Kasdan, so. The master. My number five is also from Crystal Skull, and it's kind of a cheat, but the first, like, 15 minutes of that movie rip from the moment Indy picks his hat up through the the mushroom cloud, Indy standing next to it, that the atomic age has arrived. Just love it. It's like vintage indie action. It's so great. The dialogue is wonderful from the way you're chewed on those wobble yous. I'd say Eastern Ukraine. One of my all time favorite indie moments is him swinging and stopping short and swinging back and crashing into the oh, truck yeah. and saying, I, I thought that was, uh, what does he say? Damn, I thought that was closer. Yeah. Damn, I thought that was closer. Yeah. Uh, and then punches the guy in the face. Classic. So that's my number five. What's your number four? Number four is it's a little moment in the last crusade when they stop after the bike chase and the whole you know berlin is that way and the whole it's an obsession dad and i never understood it and neither did mom oh yes she did only too well unfortunately she always kept it from me i just love (laughs) that little exchange between the two of them the quest for the grail is not archaeology it's a race against evil If it is captured by the Nazis, the armies of darkness will march all over the face of the earth. Do you understand me? This is an obsession, Dad. I never understood it. Never. Neither did Mom. Oh, yes, she did. Only too well. The first time they ever talked about uh, Indiana Jones' mother, just that little tiny moment with the with Sean Connery and Harrison Ford. I just love that scene. Um, I might have an Indian Sean Connery moment later on my list, but I, my number four is also from The Last Crusade, but that is a wonderful moment. Any time in The Last Crusade where they're quipping at each other like that is solid gold. My number four is the tank chase in The Last Crusade. For me, it's like quintessential indie action scene. It's low to the ground. It's kind of slow. I always think about the moment where he gets stuck on the turret on the side and how he could kind of just like let go and like run behind and get back on the tank. 
but you're so invested in it in the moment. You know, it's like, of course, this is happening. It just really reminds me of like the best of indie. And of course, it leads to the really wonderful moment where they go over the edge and they're all peering over like we've lost indie. And he just like he comes and looks over their shoulder too. really, really perfect. What's your number three? Okay, so my number three is a recent one from Dow Destiny. It's the oh, wow. It's the ending with Marion. Karen Allen stealing the entire movie with just her face. And that as soon as she walks in with her kind of cool older 60s woman look and the side braid. And I, you know, I've always loved Karen Allen and Marion. The camera right on her face and her saying, I heard you're back. Like, they told me you were back. Are you really back? And all just the nostalgia done so well with the repeat of the scene from Raiders where, like, where well, where doesn't it hurt? And in Raiders, it's a physical, like, it's a gag. Like, yeah, Indy's been doing all this stuff and he's a rough and tumble guy and it hurts. But I love that in this one, it's... It's an it's an inside hurt. It's an emotional hurt that the both of them have, and just so clever, so well done, and just it's two actors and John Williams music, and that is the way we leave our character Indiana Jones, and I just thought it was absolutely beautiful. So that's my number three. That eventually will probably be my number one ever because I <laughs> was sobbing like a baby in the theater. Both times, I was like, it probably won't happen again. And then it, it like, as soon as she comes in holding the groceries, it's like just waterworks. It's all over. I feel like James Mangold and the writers of this movie like started there right, and worked backwards. It just like, it could not have ended any other way. My number three is also an emotional indie moment, kind of the reverse end of that though. Um, the conversation between Indy and his dad on the, on the, the blimp, kind of the Rosetta Stone for unlocking and deepening Indiana Jones as a character, which up until this point, we weren't really thinking about. We knew the character traits. We knew the guy, like we talked about earlier, we understood what made Indy Indy. But at this point, when Sean Connery says you left just when you started to get interesting, it cuts so deep that you understand the character from that point on. And this whole scene and this whole movie actually is really interesting post Fablemans mm-hmm. uh, as, as most Spielberg movies are now post Fablemans. It's like, Whoa, last crusade was already the Fablemans. I get it. Yeah. I really, really love that scene. That, that specific conversation always gets me. It was just the two of us, dad. It was a lonely way to grow up for you too. If you'd been an ordinary average father, like the other guy's dads, you'd have understood that. Actually, I was a wonderful father. Did I ever tell you to eat up, go to bed, wash your ears, do your homework? No, I respected your privacy, and I taught you self-reliance. What you taught me was that I was less important to you than people who'd been dead for 500 years in another country, and I learned it so well that we've hardly spoken for 20 years. You left just when you were becoming interesting. When just two amazing actors that are just so good at doing so much by doing so little you know you have two incredible performances in that movie but none of them are going nuts you know it's it's no. both very like subdued kind of realistic performances in a completely unrealistic setting that is an indiana jones movie just wonderful what's your number two my number two is the opening credits of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We have the same number two. Just wanted you to know. Oh, my God. It goes so hard. Yeah. It goes so hard. Steven Spielberg, we've got the sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
one of the most one of the most successful movies ever made at that time. Well, how are we going to open it with a musical number that makes no sense? We're kind of letting you know right away what you're in for, Temple Doom. <laughs> Camera, I love that it goes into the dragon that's on stage at Club Obi-Wan. And there's this huge <laughs> room with just so many dancers. And it's like, that's not even back there. That what, what are we looking at here? And the movie kind of telling you, don't think those thoughts. You've got you to right. just roll with this. Yeah, Best Picture nominated Raiders of the Lost Ark into full Anything Goes in Chinese. I watched it again recently. I forgot that it's the full song. Yeah. In my memory, it was her performing with the background dancers, and it cuts to the part with the antidote. And I was like, oh, no, it's the it's the entire number. My number two is not anything beyond that. It's just the opening musical mo- montage of that because it's so absurd and so beautifully staged, and it's like Spielberg magic all at once. So that opening number is fantastic, and it's partly why it's my favorite movie. Plus, the Temple of Doom font like can't be I beat. I love it. All right, number one. Uh, number one for me uh, could be a bit of a surprise, but I, th- I hinted at it earlier. The face is melting in the end of Rares of the Lost Ark. I, it's, <laughs> I think it's, it's a nostalgic, it's a personal thing for me, but also it's it's... Chris Wayless, I love the direction that Chris Wayless got for that was just like, I don't know, just make faces melt. And <laughs> it's, you know, it rares the lost Ark. You know, like we said, it's ridiculous. It's it's part of pop culture. You forget how ridiculous it is, but the faces melting is such like a what in the world kind of thing where suddenly it goes full like gore gross out <laughs> and just you know you're not we're not just going to kill the nazis like the ark just like kills them blows them back and they die or something no it's got to be this grizzly melting them down to their skulls <laughs> and i they burst into flames yeah, yeah. and they're, they're like one guy gets deflated like a balloon <laughs> from I think it's like I said, it's very nostalgic because I think for me at five years old, it was very much just like this is the coolest thing I have <laughs> ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, and I still I, I sometimes I'll just put on the whole like opening of the art scene because I think again with Williams music, the cinematography, the editing, just like when things start going buck wild how quickly it goes and how it's cute. It's almost like, you know, how like the story with E.T., how Spielberg just let Williams just score. And then Spielberg, especially for the third act, went back and cut the music to Williams score where it it's similar to that. I, I That wasn't what they did, but it's like, it's just everything working in perfect harmony. I love the very poltergeist looking kind of specter ghosts floating around of the women and stuff. The one that looks right in the camera and then turns into like that ghoulish face. Just so, so, so cool. I just love that scene. You know it's going to be bad. You know the building tension of like, this is not going to go good. But it's so just like played for fun too. And even though it's, yeah, I just just think it's just a beautiful little bizarre crazy moment. You know what I love the most about it is like, you know, we have like the Staff of Ra and like the Well of Souls, which are like slightly 
mystical, but like really nothing in the movie up to that point is supernatural. And then like just out of nowhere, it just goes ballistic and it's really not anything more satisfying than watching Nazis faces melt. So my number one was referenced in your number three, the where it doesn't it hurt mm-hmm. scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I overthought it because number one is clearly the faces melting. <laughs> um, you know, you said it's played as a joke, but there is a sadness to it. When I was watching my post like a little letterbox review on my Instagram. And I was like, when I was younger, I used to relate to Indiana Jones saying, I'm just making this up as I go along. But now that I'm this old, I relate more to falling asleep when Marion starts to make out with him. <laughs> it's There's a sadness to it as well, because there's some kind of Batman parallels here in that we get the feeling in this moment that Indy's work and his obsession and what he does will keep him from ever being loved or allowing himself to love. You know, it's, it's a joke. It's a sexy moment. It's a very sexy moment. Uh, it's like iconic for a reason, but I th- there's always like a tinge of sadness to it. You know, him falling asleep is, you know, he's battered and bruised and messed up from from fighting and getting hit in the face with a mirror seconds beforehand. But like, there's a sense of, I can't be with this person that I love because I can't turn my brain off and I can't stop questing, which plays into Dial of Destiny as well. And that's why that inverse works so beautifully is... No, he does make his way back to her. It couldn't end in any better way. So I know I said that we could do that, but it was a bold move putting a Dial of Destiny on the on the top five list. I appreciate that. Oh yeah, no, I, uh, and, and that's you know, and that's where that movie is for me right now. I mean, people ever since I saw it in L.A., people are like, "Well, how does it rank with the other ones?" And I'm like, "Don't ask me that question because I don't know." I had that thought for a second. I was like, "I can't even answer that question." No, yeah, I can't. I I seriously can't. But I know I can honestly say, even though. I've only been with the movie for two weeks that that scene is one of my all time favorites. Cause it's the first time I've ever, like, like you said, like the first time I've ever like teared up an Indiana Jones movie. And that really says something. And you know, it's like the, the Yoda scene in the last Jedi. That was the first time I ever teared up in a star Wars movie. Well, I think I teared up when Han Solo got frozen in carbonite when I was a little kid, but that was different. The Yoda scene in last Jedi hit me way harder and for a different reason. And it was a similar thing. Like after I walked out of last Jedi where I was just like, yeah, this is, different and i like that and i I feel like that's how i feel with dial of destiny Jason, thank you so much for being here and doing this and taking the time. I'm sure you're indie podcasted out, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. We uh yeah, we, we we made a big deal in our Dial of Destiny episode. We were like, this is it. And now we're gonna go back to Star Wars and we've got an idea for kind of a follow-up to Dial of Destiny. So we're, we're, we're brewing on that. So I think we're going to do one more Dial of Destiny. And then as we start inching closer to Ahsoka season, we'll we'll be we'll be bringing we'll be bringing the Star Wars furniture back into the house. After the Indiana Jones house party. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for being here. I know you're a huge fan. And it was uh, an honor to have you on. So yeah, if you like what you heard here today, make sure to follow us at B1N1Pod. Make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on Apple Podcasts. Ring the bell and rate us five stars on Spotify. Have you seen those little like things you could do on Spotify where it's like, what did you think of this episode? Those terrify oh, me. I didn't, no, I haven't seen that. Wow. 
Thanks to Christian Cremo for our theme music. And thanks to Indiana Jones for being in our lives for 40 years now. So, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you.